All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. This is Nikki Acosta, and this is Cloud Unfiltered, a Cisco video podcast. And I have a great guest with me today. This is Brandon Matheson. Brandon, tell us about you. Um, so I am uh, one of the lead technical engineers for the Cisco Cloud uh, Group, and I do work in the operations team. Uh, dealing with day-to-day -day stuff as well as developing tools to make operations more efficient. And you've had a crazy, amazing past. You sent over your LinkedIn uh, prior to this, and we haven't really interacted that much despite working on the same uh, product lines in the same business unit. But uh, I was checking out your LinkedIn, and I was like, wow. And I saw security clearance, and you know, you do a bunch of talks, and there's you know all kinds of interesting things there. So give us a little uh, a little history about you and take us back to what you were like as a kid all the way up through today? Oh boy, um, okay, so um, when I was very young, uh, I've always been into hacking, and when I say hacking, the idea is to make something do something it was never intended to do, it's not necessarily malicious. And when I was young, I might have hacked the cable box in our house so we could get HBO. And uh, my mom uh, called the cable company up and had them come out and was expecting them to blister me for hacking the cable box. And uh, the guy actually offered me a job because he said, you did something nobody else could ever do. Um, so I started that, uh, I did, um, I was in the Navy, I did cryptology uh, as a crypto tech in the Navy. Uh, from there, I went and worked at NASA on hardware, everything from Cray to SGI to IBM to a lot of deck equipment, spent, uh, broke my teeth in on uh, VMS, if you guys can remember that. Uh, from there, I got a, a friend of mine who gave me a Unix account for the first time, and I started to learn Unix, and um, the rest is, as they say, history. From there, I was hired as a junior admin. Within a year, I had 200 machines under my belt, and uh, from there, I've worked various jobs for large distributed plumbing companies. Uh, I did some work for the TSA. I did the, some work for the Department of Energy. Um, I used to be the, um, I was the director of IT and then the CIO for Silent Circle Black Phone for a little while. Uh, and then I ended up here and I'm working for Cisco and um, it's fun because I, I they bring me the hard problems, which is what I like. I, I like to I don't like to have easy stuff to do. I like to have difficult things that challenge me. And this job is definitely that. Do you find yourself getting bored if you're not challenged? Yes, absolutely. Um, I enjoy my tagline is uh, I bet you can't make X work with Y and I bet you I will find a way to do it. It's just one of the things I like to do um, in my in my personal life. I do crazy things like build a lighting system for the band I play in out of open source software. Um, I teach classes on Raspberry Pis using cheap routers, uh, all kinds of fun stuff. I always like to just challenge myself to do something bigger and better and different. So, yes. What, what do you play in the band? Just out of curiosity. I play bass keys and pedal boards, so I have a set of pedal boards that I play. If if you're a Rush fan, uh, my idol's Ed, uh, Geddy Lee, and that was his style, and so I've taken a lot of his uh, cues, and um, I actually had a gig last night. It was a lot of fun. Renaissance man. You look like you're in good shape for having gigged last night, by the way. <laughs> for those who are listening, you can't see him, but he looks awake. <laughs> So uh, I, I was kind of keying in on, on the on the uh, black circle work that you did. I still saw that you had uh, a pretty high level of security clearance. Obviously, if you work for the TSA and others, you probably had to go through all that. But uh, you know, given that, first of all, tell people what uh, what, what black circle uh, does. Black phone. So black phone black was phone. a subdivision of. 
Silent Circle, and Silent Circle is a company that sold software that had, was privacy-enhanced communications, and the Black Phone was going to be a trusted platform to run those tools on where you could then feel like your communications would be 100% secure. Um, if you run, let's say, Whisper, or you run Telegram, or you run Signal, or any of these other tools on an iPhone or an Android phone, while that your communications may be secure, the platform you're running on may or may not be. And so the idea was to build a platform that would be more secure um, and couldn't be intercepted before it actually got into the software. So uh, that work was a lot of fun. And uh, I was there for the first black phone and helping get the second black phone out of the gate. Um, and we had a lot of interesting customers, as you might imagine, um, governments and agencies and so forth and so on. But the idea of communities and individuals, particularly wanting privacy, was really strong. Um, I teach at a hacking conference called ShmooCon every uh, January, and that's where I got to know the people at Silent Circle Black Phone. And of course there, there is a huge number of people that are privacy focused, um, that care that their information remains their information, that it's not given out uh, arbitrarily, or it's not requested arbitrarily, and so forth and so on. So the idea of that as a job really appealed to me when it came around. It actually taught, they talked me into leaving NASA to go do that. And um, I really enjoyed it. It was a good time. Um, I'm always looking for, to see what the next big thing is going to be in tech along those lines and, and giving where everything is going on and everything that's happening with uh, information leakage and information control and so forth and so on. I, I think we're going to see more and more um, of those types of services either come and go or come and be strong. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they survive or if they survive. So, so based on what is, you know, going on, you know, how hard is it going to be to, let's say, find someone who may have posted leaked photos of the bombing in Germany or in, so, like, in Manchester, right. you know, they're pretty mad at us. Uh, other countries are pretty mad. Uh, but, but what does that look like for as a security professional such as yourself? So um, it, it depends on the quality of the person that did it, right? Um, one of the things that's happened with security is that um, it's become a lot easier for just anybody to be fairly competent and fairly effective in doing malicious things using tools that exist. So when you're talking about an information leak like that, let's say these images or whatever, um, for them to distribute them, if they're using even relatively easy to use tools such as maybe Signal or Telegram or some of these other tools that you can get on a phone or they're routing them through Tor using um, you know uh, Hushmail or other tools such as that it becomes very very difficult to track them down. Um, I'm not going to say impossible because I, I'm absolutely sure there are entities that are watching traffic in ways we haven't figured out yet and so I believe that the, the capacity exists for people to be found. The interesting problem that they have is if they found them they don't want to divulge how they found them, therefore they may not be culpable in court. Um, and that ah. just play, that whole scenario just played itself out where somebody was, um, uh, sadly, was uh, peddling pictures on the net that shouldn't have been peddled. And they caught him, and they caught him using a means that they didn't want to disclose, so they had to drop the case. And so those, those kinds of things happen. And I feel like that balance is going to be an interesting thing to watch over the next many years because I think the, cap the capacities and capabilities of people both watching the, the content and the people trying to sneak through the content are, are advancing rapidly. And so um, it's almost a game of cat and mouse or, or, uh, in, in, or even like trying to fight a virus, right? We, we make one 
um, we make one vaccine for it and the virus evolves and becomes something else that that vaccine won't do. And it's the same thing with uh, vulnerabilities on the net where you have worms running around. And so I think wholeheartedly trying to find somebody that um, even uses a modicum of, of privacy knowledge to obfuscate their, their communications, it, it, it raises the bar significantly that it, it almost takes governmental entities to be able to ferret them out that have just vast amounts of money to throw at that kind of a problem where they can Which is look what at happened today. Right. I think I just saw right. a on my phone that said, you know, there's been a, there's been an ask of the justice department to go and find the leakers. Right. Yep. And it'll be interesting to see if they, if they can, I'm not saying it's not possible. Usually the, the problem doesn't happen at the technology level. The problem happens after the technology level. Um, it's much easier to find you know, the, the old saying is two people can't keep a secret. One person can. Because if two people shared it, somebody else is going to hear it, or there's there's some means of communication that can be in, intercepted to determine what that secret was. Plus, there's also this idea of metadata, where let's say that the person transmitted those 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 pictures were transmitted across the net at a particular time. Um, you can look heuristically at the data flows on the net and try to backtrace to where that data came from. And so you can do that without actually knowing what the content was, but knowing that the transmission happened at a particular time to a particular place. And wow. So I, I think those I think those capabilities are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And that would be the, the facility that's in Utah that the NSA built would be a good example of, of information collection of that kind of metadata where they would be able to use it. I do remember a few years ago, there was a, a really awesome guy uh, who joined the OpenStack Foundation to do a keynote, and he was from the NSA, and he did his whole keynote, and it was all redacted. He's like, so, you know, I'm here, you know, here's how many servers we run, and it was like black bars on everything. Yep. And sure. uh, later on, we did a promotion uh, for a deck of cards for people of OpenSec, and he made the cut. And I got really nervous when someone from the NSA called and said, you need to call me back. <laughs> I was like, what is this about? <laughs> and she just wanted to make sure that you know we weren't profiting and that, you know. That's right. It's under $25 and all that Yeah, stuff. there was like a whole thing about it. I was like, no, this is like an award. And she was like, oh, OK. So, but yeah, it, it was pretty, it was pretty uh, interesting to go through that process and just see like how serious they are, you know, about security. I mean, personally, if I worked for an entity like, you know, the NSA or anyone dealing with sensitive information, I think I would be personally concerned that someone might be looking at my stuff all the time. Well, yeah. And, and, and having had a clearance that it, they teach you to be circumspect about how you operate, what you do. I mean, we would walk out of the building, immediately put our badge in our pocket. I mean, it, it would be to that level. And you, you're very circumspect in all, in all efforts that you are trying to achieve because of that. It, whether it's who you're talking to sitting at a bar or you're work, doing work or you're writing an email, it's all, it's all along those lines. And I think those entities, for good or for ill, right? I, I have personal opinions, but for good or for ill, they've had some fairly major leaks the, the latest um, WannaCry vulnerability that just ran around happened because the NSA vulnerabilities that they exploited and didn't report were found, leaked to the net, somebody figured out how to weaponize it and then turned it around into WannaCry. And so, you know, th those things make them A, look bad because they didn't release them, B, look bad because they had the leak. And so you, you, want, you want to not mitigate as much as possible your, um, uh, what's the word, your, how you look to other people, your, your, can't remember the word, I'm not drawing a blank here, but um, that is important as, as almost as important as your credibility, because if people start to lose faith in your capacity to perform your job well, or lose faith that you're a credible source of information, then 
they're not going to rely on you as much and you're not going to be as effective. So, uh, you know, James Tapper and some of the other ones that have been just railing about the leaks and the problems that have been occurring um, between Edward Snowden and the WikiLeaks with um, Solange, whatever his name is. Yeah. Yeah, Julian Assange. All those things, I think, have been uh, very, very impactful to the security apparatus across the world, not just us everywhere. Um, and there are other examples. I don't want to go into them here, but there are other examples where it's been very public. Um, somebody has given out information publicly that really probably shouldn't have. And it's been pointed out in the news that that was not appropriate. So <laughs> say no more, friend. I, I'm with you. I got you. Uh, so <laughs> along those same lines, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on net neutrality. This is something that's been in the news. You know, people who are in tech circles, obviously follow it. People who may not be in tech circles may not even know what, what, what net neutrality is or uh, kind of what the premise is behind it. So give us a rundown on your thoughts about uh, how you think about net neutrality and what, what the impact could be for some of the latest uh, rulings that are happening. Right, so net neutrality is the idea that um, information that is flowing from one provider to another or through a particular provider can't be constrained by that provider arbitrarily. Um, in other words, if I have, at home sitting and watching Netflix um, and I'm on Comcast or Cox or whoever I'm on and they have a competing service, they can't downgrade Netflix to make their service more attractive, um, which is, is one aspect of it. There are a lot of others that go that are into it, but um, it's interesting in having grown up on um, watching the internet grow, peering points between providers has always been a, a, a an issue of concern because you see them um, sometimes you'll see them bandwidth constrain a particular provider and open up another one. And usually there's money changing hands for that. Um, that is kind of what drove us to this idea of net neutrality and that said, Hey, Hey, you can't do that. It's, you got to make a level playing field. And what that's allowed is small individual companies to be able to compete with large, huge companies and do what the things they want to do, um, without feeling like, because they're a small company trying to compete with a big company, their network traffic is going to be lessened. Therefore, they're not going to get as much sales. Therefore, they're not going to be as successful. Therefore, they may fall apart. So um, there's that aspect of it, too. And then there's also the information control aspect where people who are sharing information on the net um, have some, some innate idea that their information will be free and that nobody can control the access to it or um, control the content. And that I think is changing. It certainly changed for some of the more restrictive countries like North Korea and China and even the UK and some of these other ones where they have put controls in place that say, hey, you, you, you can't do that. Or even France that said, hey, um, if you can delete your profile on Facebook and nobody can ever find it again. So globalization of the Internet is, has kind of impacted this as well. But the problem becomes that if you have information that you want to share and somebody decides at a le some level that they don't want you to share it, especially if they're a government or a corporate entity that has control of those flows, then you can be restricted. And so in this country, we have free speech, and that's very important to us. And these new rulings that are starting to come down where individual companies, let's say Comcast, um, could restrict access to certain sites. Let's say it's an anti-net neutrality website that Comcast is trying to restrict right now, which is a case. Then they're using their corporate power to control their speech that is against their, against their will, if you will. Um, and they're doing it in a way that um, would, could snowball very quickly, very, very quickly. We also have the idea that with this, um, with net neutrality, information is free and 
information is not massaged, let's say. So if you are on a particular website and you get adver advertisements or you get information off this website, the, 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 in, the inform information provider that you have, the ISP that you have, cannot intercept your communications and change it as it's inbound to you. And so now you have a, a much more interesting controlled environment um, where somebody not you and somebody not somebody you would trust, whether it's a government or a, or a commercial entity, can now control what you see and what you think. And I think um, as somebody who teaches social engineering, this would be a classic case of, of, of controlling the narrative. And if that persists, we're going to have more proles than, than we do now and more sheeple, as the term may go, because they're only going to get one point of view. And I think you cannot be effective as an arbiter of control. If you're going to vote, if you're going to participate in your government, if you're going to participate um, in the control of your own information, unless you are fully informed, you cannot do that. And so net neutrality, I think it, 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 it has implications across the board. It's a very broad um, and scary topic. And the fact that it's interesting to me, I saw something the other day where apparently there were 23 million comments on the anti-net neutrality thing on the FCC website, and they're still moving ahead with it. So uh, they also said that there were DDoS. And when somebody said, okay, show us the traffic, and they said, oh, well, no, it, it happened, and they couldn't prove it. So I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, certainly, I think the press uh, is playing into this in both directions. Um, you see um, some of the more open press and certainly the press outside this country being a little more anti-net neutrality. And you see some of the press that's in this country that is associated with the major vendors that are looking for net neutrality to exist, say NBC, um, are being less anti-net neutrality. They're being more pro. So again, I think it, it is, it has an impact across the board. And I think it will, it will change our lives is an awfully broad statement. But I think as we're moving forward in this, this exploding capacity for technology to impact our lives, the more that we allow outside people with disparate ideas to control what we see and what we think, we're going to have less opinion to be able to give that will be correct. If you don't know all the facts then, and you only know some of the facts, then you can't be an arbiter of truth. There's no way you can because you haven't examined all sides of a, of a problem. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but I hope that that was no, that was great. And you know, by the way, I'm putting out an APB for anyone who is, uh, you know, for it. If you have an opposing view, I'd love to hear from you. Most definitely, we'd like to to get most definitely yeah, a, a very varied opinions uh, on the show. So uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, the reason why we initially started to do this podcast was around kind of your role as in, in solving hard problems and using Ansible uh, and your, you know career here and your experience in operating and troubleshooting and managing complex infrastructure. So right. tell us a little bit about what Ansible is and tell us how it's helping you every day. Okay, so um, Ansible is a what we call a configuration management system. Um, we, when we talk about configuration management systems in holes and, and what they impact, we talk about machines and, and systems. And we talk about systems as um, cattle and pets. And so cattle are machines that you stand up, do something with, and slaughter. They're, they're there for the duration of whatever need you have and you get rid of them. And that's very cloudy, if you will. And then pets are machines that you stand up, you nurture them, you feed them, you patch them, you make sure they stay up. 
their long-term viable systems that must be around for whatever reason, whether they're monolithic and, and cannot expand, you know, they can't scale horizontally. You can have multiple of them. And so if one dies, you don't care, but there's that. Okay. So the cloud that we work in is tends to be more cattle than pets. And for cattle, you use tools that are more um, designed for what we call orchestration, where you're doing a step and then another step and another step and another step. And those steps could be not just on one system. They could be on a diversity of systems, but all of the systems have to work together to perform a service. And so Ansible is a neat tool that allows you to orchestrate. It certainly has its problems. Anybody that knows me knows I will be happy to sit down with a beer and go through all the issues I have with Ansible. Something tells me you would have problems with every tool though. Um, yes and no. I, I tend to look at things with a critical <laughs> eye, and I tend to also believe in the right tool for the right job. So from an orchestration and operations point of view, I think Ansible is a great tool for those for those things. In our particular environment, we Ansible is used to both deploy and manage systems. And so we have built into it configuration that talks about all the systems that are there, the accesses to them, the controls that are to them. And so that was designed for to be able to deploy and manage the systems. Well, it's great in that those exact same tools make working operations far more far easier um, because all the data is there. You don't have to have a list of passwords and go refer to it for every single host. It's already configured into the system to be able to go use. You don't have to go figure out which hosts do what. You don't have to figure out what roles they have. Um, all that information is already built into the inventory because it defined what built the system. So doing things like, um, for instance, if you have a user, uh, uh, I had a customer say, hey, I've got to replace a memory chip in this machine. Normally, there's a certain set of steps that we would go in a, in a, in a checklist to say, okay, we've got to remove it from the cluster. We've got to turn off its networking. We've got to do get all the instances off of it. We've got to do all these things. And then we can hand it off to the customer. So instead of having that long checklist now, I have one command I run that's maintenance prepare. And I run that command, and it goes and does all those things including removing it from our monitoring tool so that we don't get alerts in the middle of the night because the machine went down when they replaced the memory. Similarly, when the machine comes back and customer says, hey, I'm done with it, you can turn it back on, I have one command to run that reverts all of those steps and gets the machine back operational. And the big benefit there is, is several. One, speed, right? Now, now I'm working at the speed of the computer being able to run the commands versus me typing them. Big benefit. Um, but the other one is, uh, as a security person, risk is near and dear to my heart. And so being able to remove risk from any operation is a great thing. Using Ansible with tools such as this, you can remove a lot of the risk because you're doing the steps every time the same way consistently, every single time. And it's nice because you can integrate it with other tools. So for instance, that example I just gave you, it also puts a note in the ticket of the request saying, hey, we've we've done this work to the machine. Here's all the data that, that we had to accomplish to get that done. Uh, similarly, when it's done, it puts a note back in the ticket saying, hey, we have reverted all these steps and then and the system's finished. It's ready to go. So it's Ansible really lends itself well, I think, to an operations environment because operations, you almost always are doing steps, first of all, on multiple machines to deal with one service. So for that service I just talked about, you'd have to go to the controller and tell it to remove it. You'd have to go to the monitoring system and tell it to not monitor it. You'd have to go to uh, the networking system and say, hey, the networking for this instance is going to be down. Uh, all these different pieces. And so Ansible really works well for that. Um, and there, there are a million other things that you can do with it. 
Um, Ansible is it's written mostly in uh, YAML, which is yet another markup language, which is a fairly easy thing to write. It it or, has its origins in Perl, um, and Perl's big thing was there's more than one way to do it. So YAML is written with that in mind, and it's a very open and free-flowing language. There's several different ways to represent the same data. Um, and so it makes it easier, to, easy to customize and, and edit it um, for, you don't have to know a, a huge amount of programming language to do it. That being said, Ansible's language, such as, if I can use that word, is uh, not as well structured as I would see in other tools, which are the tools we would use with pets. And those are what we would call stateful tools. And those would be tools like Puppet, Salt, Chef, where they you define a state in configuration and then it applies that state to the machine. If the machine, something small changes on the machine, the tool will recognize that one thing has changed and revert it back to what it needs to be and deal with all the dependencies. The difference between that and Ansible is, Ansible doesn't really have a great dependency system. It just does everything step by step by step by step. So it's really good for doing an install. If you wanna install something, you're gonna have a list of things you gotta do, go apply it, great. And it's good for orchestration because if you have a something, you, a process you have to execute, you have a list of steps you have to do, go do them. That's fantastic. So that's that's kind of the rundown of, of Ansible. Um, we've we've been using it in operations now for a while, and it's it's gotten to the point where I think it it needs a broader approach. I, I think more people need to start looking at this. And so I'm uh, going to bring this up at Usenix this year. I'm going to teach a small class, I hope, on Ansible for operations, one way or the other. Um, and I'm certainly going to, on the hallway track, as we call it, where you sit around with your other peers in the hallway and discuss new things and better ways to do stuff. This is a topic I definitely want to bring up and see how many other people are really looking at it from this point of view. I, I love the desire to go out and just make things better. And that's, you know, one one big thing I can say about communities is that, uh, you know, you just get, uh, you get this feedback, you know, these these hallway conversations. And you can contribute back and make something better, and that to me is is so awesome. I wish it applied in every field. You know, just think about how far medical research would be, or you know, pharmaceutical research would be, or really anything. If uh, if folks really collaborated uh, and and took an open source view. That said, there probably would be as much money uh, in certain things. But hey, well. I think open source has lent itself to that. Um, and it goes all the way back to Richard Stallman and the, and the GNU license. I think the idea that this software is free, all you have to do is include this, <laughs> and you can build it, you can copy it, you can do what you want. That mentality has lent itself very well. I, I was a FreeBSD developer back in the day, and, and you know I, I watched a lot of the early communities come along as different projects came and went on the net. And the one factor that I do know is outside of Sometimes you always get the rock star that wants to be at the front of the crowd. Outside of those very rare people, honestly, in this community, you see a lot of people that really have just strong interest to make things better and strong interest to improve. How we do it might be a subject for discussion that really, you know, doesn't come to fisticuffs, but, you know, beer poured on somebody's head is probably not unrealistic. But outside of that, I think the desire to work together is an important one that we see in our community very strongly. It, it happens in the security community. It happens in the sysadmin community. It happens in the engineering community. I think what what I would like to see more of is those three communities particularly have more integration that work together side by side more distinctly. The DevOps moniker has been applied to some of that, but I think you're going to see you're going to have to see more and more of it because the pace of change outside of things we can control is happening quicker and quicker and quicker between vulnerability management between hardware, between, you know, the ideas of virtualization, you know, 
when I started out, the big thing was clustering, right? That was that was DEC VMS and that was Novell Networks. You clustered them. And then you had Windows come along and everything was monolithic for a while and they had central servers. And then you had uh, thin clients. So now you had thin little desktops and big servers somewhere running all this stuff. And that kind of came and went. And now we're into the cloud and that that's become a big thing. And now we're on the cusp of starting to see microservices and other things like that that, that are starting to be enveloped. And so, um, to their credit, most things like OpenStack, Cisco, even VMware, and some of the other country, companies like that are starting to embrace the idea that anything should be able to run anywhere. We just need to find a way to do it effectively. So whether it's running on bare metal, whether it's running in a microservice, whether it's running in a whole server, whether it's running virtualized across many servers, however you want to do it, um, I think I think the pace of change is increasing. And so for us to keep up effectively, I think we, the arbiters of managing that change internally, you know, being able to both absorb it and then deploy it, uh, we'll also have to be able to move faster. And so automation is the key, right? And so coming back full circle, Ansible, Puppet, all those tools that automate processes that we used to do by hand for hours and hours and hours, we can now do at the push of a button almost literally. I think those are the keys and those are gonna continue to be the keys to the success of um, both the cloud and general technology. It's, it's a little scary in that I think it's creating the, the premise that jobs are going to be phased out. I was I just going to ask you about that. It seems yeah, to be think, a resounding concern. Yeah, and I think it's a valid one to a point. So the idea that jobs will be phased out, we had this discussion uh, at a group I belong to at USENIX, and there's always going to be a need for the desktop manager in an office, in a small office. That's always going to be there. It's never going to go away. You know, companies like Google will say, oh, use our Google office, and that's going to be effective to a point. But I don't think you're ever going to see that go away totally. I think it's going to take a long time before that happens. Um, and same thing with tech support, desktop support, troubleshooting. I think global, I think systemization, system administration as an art that we have today is rapidly evolving into a DevOps developer type situation where you're automating most everything that you do. And I would expect that trend to continue. I think the only place you're going to see sysadmins as we, we have them now is legacy equipment and um, places like college campuses and others that have a fairly, what's a good word here? Um, the, the, even at NASA, we had the same thing. In an academic environment, you tend to have a broader requirement for different types of systems and different types of configurations and so forth and so on that can't be duplicated or replicated in the cloud. So, for instance, when I was at NASA, um, even recently, uh, we had Windows XP machines. I had to manage 600 of them in a, in a quote-unquote Windows environment um, to be able to run software. We had, we had testing apparatus that ran on Windows 98 that we could not get rid of. We couldn't put it on the network, right, because it would get owned in short order. But I think those types of environments, you're always going to have a need for the unique people to be able to deal with the aspects of those systems that are not found in you know, a cloud, that are not found in uh, a cluster, that are not found in a business. A business can, can constrain very easily and say, hey, we're only gonna run Windows or we're only gonna run Mac OS. And a business can constrain and say, hey, we're only gonna store our stuff in Dropbox. We're only going to use Zoom for our, for our, our or WebEx for our, our communication. And that's easy to do. But when you're talking about academic environments like NASA, Department of Energy, and some of the other places I work, you can't do that. That, that, that's not going to happen. And so there'll always be a need for those people there, always. 
my my uh my sister reminds me of my, my I have an identical twin. So if anyone ever sees me and you say hi to me and I don't say hi back, it's probably because it's not me. But my uh, my <laughs> twin sister is an expert at running teleprompters, and there's not a lot. There's not a huge market for the software that these teleprompter companies makes, but it only runs on old Windows machines. Right. And so we had to get her a uh, a laptop and install a virtual desktop so she could run this ancient uh, this ancient technology, which works with all the still operating teleprompters that are out there in the world. Not a huge right. market for them. So I, I see what you're saying there, and I, I could definitely see a need for it. One last question, uh, and this is something I like to ask all my guests, but you know. One thing that I that I do see a lot of is sort of this desire to address problems, business problems, you know, uh, productivity problems, all kinds of problems with technology. How important is culture in relationship to technology when solving these problems? Team dynamics, social dynamics, all of it. Very. So um, it's interesting you mentioned that at uh, Usenix, which I'm, I've been part of that organization now for a while. We have a whole track on culture. That's all it's about. And we talk about culture a lot because, again, as I said earlier, I think the open source movement and I think the Unix world and the systems engineering world and the system administration world, whether it's Windows, doesn't matter. I think it's engendered a, a very strong um, culture of people. And it's interesting having watched the different types of people that get involved in that culture, right? You see the, the very quiet people. You see the, the beards in the closets. You see... Uh, people who are very outgoing sometimes, you see some incredibly smart people. And um, it's a very diverse organization of groups of people, but what you do see is they all have a common theme and thread. And so it's interesting, you were asking earlier, um, I still am on IRC and I still find a lot of the best conversation about systems and engineering and how to deal with managers, how to deal with uh, customers, how to best approach a problem. You still find those those communities out there, um, even in IRC, which is right. It's been around since the early '90s, um, and I think I think you're going to see that you, you've seen some people adopt the Book of Faces, and you've seen some people adopt Google Plus, and some of these other things. But the technology communities are still outside of things like Stack Exchange, which I think has done phenomenal work along those lines, you still see them in, in niche places. You don't see them uh, clustered together in, in large groups. And I think it's one of the interesting things that uh, a lot of businesses struggle with is trying to tap that culture, trying to find ways to affect that culture. You know, I've seen different companies use different approaches in, in trying to do it, and, and it's difficult because they almost spring up uh, organically uh, based on the group of people based on the locale, based on the common work. Uh, in my role, I end up working with people in the morning from Europe and in the afternoon from California. And so I get a very broad spectrum of ideas and thoughts and diversity. But it's interesting in that a lot of the impetus to improve things, as you were asking earlier, a lot that that is pervasive. You don't see that not exist in our groups. Now, I think it probably has a lot to be said that we have an extremely intelligent group, um, which is really nice. It's great to work with your peers. It's, um, it's, it's fantastic to be able to work with your peers like that. And so the expectation is you would. The expectation is you would see people step out of the box, think differently, find good solutions, and try to apply them and do it in a group format. Um, but even then, if, if in the other places I've worked, whether it was NASA, whether it was um, some of the other places, you still find good collections of people that kind of congregate um, 
and and form these little communities to be able to come together and solve problems. One of the things I did at NASA was try to do, I, I tried this once myself. So I, I created sysadmin.nasa.gov, which was a website for all of NASA. If you look it up on YouTube, I have a nice little cheesy video I made one day about it. Um, and the idea was to build a, a community and a place for people to come together and try to share information, whether it was a salt, how to fix a problem, whether it was a unique cool script, and it works sort of. But the thing that I found is that niche groups, whether they were at Ames or Goddard or, or Lewis or any of the other sites we had, they had their own little communities and it was hard to you know, try to bring everybody together. We did have an IRC that was um, NASA wide, if you will, and we had individuals from different, different uh, centers on there all the time. And so I got to know a lot of people across there. But even within those centers, those people were part of a community in their center and then they were a part of a community with us but there was never a shared community. So I, I think- Do you think companies are doing enough to facilitate the cultural change necessary to take advantage of the latest and greatest technologies? Um, I don't, it's not that I don't think they're doing enough. It's, and, and I'm not, and, and believe me, I'm certainly not the one to ask on how to do this, but I think nobody has, nobody has figured it out yet very well. I think a lot of companies have come a long way from where we were. It used to be we all had to do this on our own. Right, which is why IRC came around, which is why, you know, wikis came around. It's because we got sick of just writing text files on a share somewhere and started trying to find ways to organize our information better. Um, and so I think companies are starting to give us tools to do that, that work a lot better than what we have had before. But as far as, you know, taking that to it from, from just a community to a whole culture, from, from, in, from raising the bar as you will, it's a, it's a hard step to make. Uh, I would, I haven't, the, the closest company I've seen from what I've heard um, to get there is, is companies like Google and companies like SpaceX who have. Who, um, who, weren't, who weren't founded that long ago. I mean, generally speaking, right. in terms of like the enterprise, like they're kind of newer kids on the block, right? They are. And I think the, the big thing here is they got, they were able to get like-minded people in quickly. And, and because of that, they were all organized together. Whereas most of the, the other companies I was talking about, whether it's TSA or NASA or the rest of them, they've been around for a long time. And so, and they weren't necessarily, while, you know, NASA had the, NASA's where I got on the internet for the first time back in the late 80s. Awesome. So, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but at the same time, they didn't organize into a, cult, a community that was across the board. And some cultures, you know, some cultures like, one of the things that they said Columbia failed, the reason Columbia failed was the culture of safety that was at NASA. And there's a whole report on that that you can read. It's, it's worth doing. But some culture building hasn't gone well. And that would be, I think, a good example of it where they just, you know, they, they, they started letting things slide to get to a goal. And, and so when they said, hey, we need to look at the underside of the orbiter and, um, an upper management said, no, you don't need to do that. And then it came down and there was a hole over near the, um, the landing gear. We had a, we had a failure. And I think that's, that's a concern. Um, and, and I don't see that in a lot of corporations. Um, the only, the, the thing I see in corporations is, is usually either customer or money driven. The best corporations I've seen are customer driven by far. The ones that are, 
they will make the changes for the customer. They'll go out of the way for the customer. That usually leads to the money. The worst co corporations I've seen have been the ones that look at the bottom line and make their decisions based on that. And usually, unfortunately, a lot of small companies end up in that pocket because that's all they have. They don't have a customer base that they can improve upon and then build money from it, if you will. So. Excellent perspective. Well, Branson, we are about out of time. I, I don't know if your rainstorm is going to prevent you from coaching that soccer game tonight, but uh, I wish oh, no, you, <laughs> I wish the best of luck on that. Where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? So anybody that wants to find me, I'm on Twitter as Sandinak, S-A-N-D-I-N-A-K. Uh, if you want to know what that is, ask me. I'll tell you. It's a kind of a funny story. Um, I'm on FNET as Sandinak. Uh, I hang out on the League of Professional Assistant Men's channel, LOPSA. Um, I'm almost always there. Of course, uh, at Cisco, if you're at Cisco, I'm uh, BR Mathisa in the uh, directory, and you can find me there. There was no eye roll there, I promise. For those of you just listening and not watching, there was no eye roll there. So there. <laughs> well, we're. I'm glad you're on our team because you're really smart, and uh, I look forward, hopefully, to uh, to seeing you out and about. I know you speak at conferences and you do lots of cool things, and so uh, I really, really, I know you're busy, and I thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Thank you, Branson. Please subscribe to this. Please leave your comments. Please let us know who you want to hear on this video podcast or see on this video podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, that's all for today. Branson, say bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.